Section 2 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rood. The Archiepiscopate of Thomas Becket, A.D. 1162 to 1170, by John Lingard. Part two. As the primate retired, he meditated in silence on his conduct in the council. His scruples revived, and the spontaneous censures of his attendants added to the poignancy of his feelings. In great agony of mind, he reached Canterbury, where he condemned his late weakness, interdicted himself from the exercise of his functions, wrote to Alexander a full account of the transaction, and solicited absolution from that pontiff. It was believed that, if he submitted with cheerfulness at Clarendon, he would have recovered his former ascendancy over the royal mind, but his tardy assent did not allay the indignation which his opposition had kindled, and his subsequent repentance for that assent closed the door to forgiveness. Henry had flattered himself with the hope that he should be able to extort the approbation of the customs, either from the gratitude of Alexander, whom he had assisted in his necessities, or from the fears of that pontiff, lest a refusal might add England to the nations which acknowledged the antipope. The firmness of the pope defeated all his schemes, and the king, in his anger, vowed to be revenged on the archbishop. Among his advisers there were some who sought to goad him on to extremities. They scattered unfounded reports. They attributed to Becket a design of becoming independent. They accused him of using language the most likely to wound the vanity of the monarch. He was reported to have said to his confidants that the youth of Henry required a master, that the violence of his passions must and might easily be tamed, and that he knew how necessary he himself was to a king incapable of guiding the reins of government without his assistance. It was not that these men were in reality friends to Henry. They are said to have been equally enemies to him and to the church. They sighed after the licentiousness of the last reign, of which they had been deprived, and sought to provoke a contest in which, whichever party should succeed, they would have to rejoice over the defeat of either the clergy, whom they considered as rivals, or of the king, whom they hated as their oppressor. The ruin of a single bishop was now the principal object that occupied and perplexed the mind of this mighty monarch. By the advice of his counsellors, it was resolved to waive the controversy respecting the customs, and to fight with those more powerful weapons which the feudal jurisprudence always offered to the choice of a vindictive sovereign. A succession of charges was prepared, and the primate was cited to a great council in the town of Northampton. With a misboding heart, he obeyed the summons, and the king's refusal to accept from him the kiss of peace admonished him of his danger. At the opening of the council, October 13th, John of Oxford presided. Henry exercised the office of prosecutor. The first charge regarded some act of contempt against the king, supposed to have been committed by Becket in his judicial capacity. The archbishop offered a plea in excuse, but Henry swore that justice should be done him, and the obsequious court condemned Becket to the forfeiture of his goods and chattels, a penalty which was immediately commuted for a fine of five hundred pounds. The next morning the king required him to refund three hundred pounds, the rents which he had received as a warden of Eye and Berkhamstead. Becket coolly replied that he would pay it. More, indeed, had been expended by him in the repairs— but money should never prove a cause of dissension between himself and his sovereign. Another demand followed of five hundred pounds received by the Chancellor before the walls of Toulouse. 
It was in vain that the archbishop described the transaction as a gift. Henry maintained that it was a loan, and the court, on the principle that the word of the sovereign was preferable to that of a subject, compelled him to give security for the repayment of the money. The third day the king required an account of all the receipts from vacant abbeys and bishoprics which had come into the hands of Becket during his chancellorship, and estimated the balance due to the crown at the sum of forty-four thousand marks. At the mention of this enormous demand, the archbishop stood aghast. However, recovering himself, he replied that he was not bound to answer, that at his consecration both Prince Henry and the Earl of Leicester, the judiciary, had publicly released him by the royal command from all similar claims, and that on a demand so unexpected and important he had a right to require the advice of his fellow bishops. Had the primate been ignorant of the king's object, it was sufficiently disclosed in the conference which followed between him and the bishops. Foliot, with the prelates who enjoyed the royal confidence, exhorted him to resign. Henry of Winchester alone had the courage to reprobate this interested advice. On his return to his lodgings, the anxiety of Becket's mind brought on an indisposition which confined him to his chamber, and during the next two days he had the leisure to arrange plans for his subsequent conduct. The first idea which suggested itself was a bold, and what perhaps might have proved a successful, appeal to the royal pity. He proposed to go barefoot to the palace, throw himself at the feet of the king, and to conjure him by their former friendship to consent to a reconciliation. But he afterward adopted another resolution, to decline the authority of the court, and trust for protection to the sacredness of his character. In the morning, October 18th, having previously celebrated the Mass of St. Stephen the First Martyr, he proceeded to court, arrayed as he was in pontifical robes, and bearing in his hand the archiepiscopal cross. As he entered, the king, with the barons, retired to a neighboring apartment, and was soon after followed by the bishops. The primate, left alone with his clerks in the spacious hall, seated himself on a bench, and with calm and intrepid dignity awaited their decision. The courtiers, to please the prince, strove to distinguish themselves by the intemperance of their language. Henry, in the vehemence of his passion, inveighed, one while against the insolence of Becket, at another against the pusillanimity and ingratitude of his favorites, till even the most active of the prelates who had raised the storm began to view with horror the probable consequences. Roger of York contrived to retire, and as he passed through the hall, bade his clerks follow him, that they might not witness the effusion of blood. Next came the bishop of Exeter, who threw himself at the feet of the primate, and conjured him to have pity on himself and the episcopal order, for the king had threatened with death the first man who should speak in his favor. Flee, then, he replied, thou canst not understand the things that are of God. Soon afterward appeared the rest of the bishops. Hilary of Chichester spoke in their name. You were, he said, our primate, but by opposing the royal customs you have broken your oath of fealty to the king. A perjured archbishop has no right to our obedience. From you, then, we appeal to the pope, and summon you to answer us before him. I hear, was his only reply. The bishops seated themselves along the opposite side of the hall, and a solemn silence ensued. At length the door opened, and the Earl of Leicester, at the head of the barons, bade him hear his sentence. My sentence, interrupted the archbishop, son and earl, hear me first. You know with what fidelity I served the king, how reluctantly to please him I accepted my present office, and in what manner I was declared by him free from all secular claims. For what happened before my consecration I ought not to answer, 
nor will I. Know, moreover, that you are my children in God. Neither law nor reason allows you to judge your father. I therefore decline your tribunal, and refer my quarrel to the decision of the Pope. To him I appeal, and shall now, under the protection of the Catholic Church and the Apostolic See, depart. As he walked along the hall, some of the courtiers threw at him knots of straw, which they took from the floor. A voice called him a traitor. At the word he stopped, and hastily turning round, rejoined, Were it not that my order forbids me, that coward should repent of his insolence. At the gate he was received with acclamations of joy by the clergy and people, and was conducted in triumph to his lodgings. It was generally believed that if the archbishop had remained at Northampton, that night would have proved his last. Alarmed by frequent hints from his friends, he petitioned to retire beyond the sea, and was told that he might expect an answer the following morning. This unnecessary delay increased his apprehensions. To deceive the vigilance of the spies that beset him, he ordered a bed to be prepared in the church, and in the dusk of the evening, accompanied by two clerks and a servant on foot, escaped by the north gate. After fifteen days of perils and adventures, Brother Christian, that was the name he assumed, landed at Gravelines in Flanders. His first visit was paid, November 3rd, to the King of France, who received him with marks of veneration, his second to Alexander, who kept his court in the city of Sens. He had been preceded by a magnificent embassy of English prelates and barons, who had endeavoured in vain to prejudice the pontiff against him, though by the distribution of presents they had purchased advocates in the College of Cardinals. The very lecture of the Constitutions closed the mouths of his adversaries. Alexander, having condemned in express terms ten of the articles, recommended the archbishop to the care of the abbot of Pontenay, and exhorted him to bear with resignation the hardships of exile. When Thomas surrendered his bishopric into the hands of the Pope, his resignation was hailed by a part of the consistory as the readiest means of terminating a vexatious and dangerous controversy. But Alexander preferred honor to convenience, and refusing to abandon a prelate who had sacrificed the friendship of a king for the interests of the church, reinvested him with the archiepiscopal dignity. The eyes of the king were still fixed on the exile at Pontenay, and, by his order, the punishment of treason was denounced against any person who should presume to bring into England letters of excommunication or interdict from either the pontiff or the archbishop. He confiscated the estates of that prelate, commanded his name to be erased from the liturgy, and seized the revenues of every clergyman who had followed him into France or had sent him pecuniary assistance. By a refinement of vengeance, he involved all those who were connected with him either by blood or friendship, and with them their families, without distinction of rank or age or sex, in one promiscuous sentence of banishment. Neither men, bowing under the weight of years, nor infants still hanging at the breast, were accepted. The list of proscription was swelled with four hundred names, and the misfortune of the sufferers was aggravated by the obligation of an oath to visit the archbishop and importune him with the history of their wrongs. Day after day crowds of exiles besieged the door of his cell at Pontenay. His heart was wrung with anguish. He implored the compassion of his friends, and enjoyed at last the satisfaction of knowing that the wants of these blameless victims had been amply relieved by the benefactions of the King of France, the Queen of Sicily, and the Pope. Still, Henry's resentment was insatiable. Pontenay belonged to the Cistercians, and he informed them that if they continued to afford an asylum to the traitor, 
not one of their order should be permitted to remain within his dominions. The archbishop was compelled to quit his retreat, but Louis immediately offered him the city of Sens for his residence. Here, as at Pontenay, Becket led the solitary and mortified life of a recluse. Withdrawing himself from company and amusements, he divided the whole of his time between prayer and reading. His choice of books was determined by a reference to the circumstances in which he was placed, and in the canon law, the histories of the martyrs, and the holy scriptures he sought for advice and consolation. On a mind naturally firm and unbending, such studies were likely to make a powerful impression, and his friends, dreading the consequences, endeavored to divert his attention to other objects, but their remonstrances were fruitless. Gradually his opinions became tinged with enthusiasm. He identified his cause with that of God and the Church. Concession appeared to him like apostasy, and his resolution was fixed to bear every privation, and to sacrifice, if it was necessary, even his own life in so sacred a contest. The violence of Henry nourished and strengthened these sentiments, and at last, urged by the cries of the sufferers, the archbishop assumed a bolder tone, which terrified his enemies, and compelled the court at Rome to come forward to his support. By a sentence, promulgated with more than the usual solemnity, he cut off from the society of the faithful such of the royal ministers as had communicated with the antipope, those who had framed the constitutions of Clarendon, and all who had invaded the property of the church. At the same time he confirmed by frequent letters the wavering mind of the pontiff. Checked by his remonstrances, the opposition of the cardinals who had been gained by his adversaries, and intimated to Henry, in strong but affectionate language, the punishment which awaited his impenitence. This mighty monarch, the lord of so many nations, while he affected to despise, secretly dreaded the spiritual arms of his victim. The strictest orders were issued that every passenger from beyond the sea should be searched, that all letters from the pope or the archbishop should be seized, that the bearers should suffer the most severe and shameful punishments, and that all free men, in the courts to which they owed service, should promise upon oath not to obey any censure published by the ecclesiastical authority against the king or the kingdom. But it was for his continental dominions that he felt chiefly alarmed. There the great barons, who hated his government, would gladly embrace the opportunity to revolt, and the king of France, his natural opponent, would instantly lend them his aid against the enemy of the church. Hence, for some years, the principal object of his policy was to avert or at least delay the blow which he so much dreaded. As long as the Pope was a fugitive in France, dependent on the bounty of his adherents, the king had hoped that his necessities would compel him to abandon the primate. But the antipope was now dead, and though the emperor had raised up a second in the person of Guido of Quima, Alexander had returned to Italy and recovered possession of Rome. Henry therefore resolved to try the influence of terror by threatening to espouse the cause of Guido. He even opened a correspondence with the emperor, and in a general diet at Würzburg his ambassadors made oath in the name of their master that he would reject Alexander and obey the authority of his rival. Of this fact there cannot be a doubt. It was announced to the German nations by an imperial edict, and is attested by an eyewitness who from the council wrote to the Pope a full account of the transaction. Henry, however, soon repented of his precipitancy. In 1167 his bishops refused to disgrace themselves by transferring their obedience at the nod of their prince, and he was unwilling to involve himself in a new and apparently hopeless quarrel. To disguise or excuse his conduct, he disavowed the act, attributed it to his envoys, and afterwards induced them also to deny it. 
John of Oxford was dispatched to Rome, who, in the presence of Alexander, swore that at Würzburg he had done nothing contrary to the faith of the Church or to the honor and service of the pontiff. His next expedient was one which had been prohibited by the constitutions of Clarendon. He repeatedly authorized his bishops to appeal in their name and in his own from the judgment of the archbishop to that of the pope. By this means, the authority of that prelate was provisionally suspended, and though his friends maintained that these appeals were not vested with the conditions required by the canons, they were always admitted by Alexander. The king improved the delay to purchase friends. By the pontiff his presents were indignantly refused. They were accepted by some of the cardinals, by the free states in Italy, and by several princes and barons supposed to possess influence in the papal councils. On some occasions Henry threw himself and his cause on the equity of Alexander. At others he demanded and obtained legates to decide the controversy in France. Twice he condescended to receive the primate and to confer with him on the subject. To avoid altercation, it was agreed that no mention should be made of the customs, but each mistrusted the other. Henry was willing to preserve the liberties of the church, saving the dignity of his crown, and the archbishop was equally willing to obey the king, saving the rights of the church. In the second conference these cautionary clauses were omitted, the terms were satisfactorily adjusted, and the primate, as he was about to depart, requested of his sovereign the kiss of peace. It was the usual termination of such discussions, the bond by which the contending parties sealed their reconciliation. But Henry coldly replied that he had formerly sworn never to give it him, and that he was unwilling to incur the guilt of perjury. So flimsy an evasion could deceive no one, and the primate departed in the full conviction that no reliance could be placed on the king's sincerity. He had now in view the coronation of his son Henry, a measure the policy of which has been amply but unsatisfactorily discussed by modern historians. The performance of the ceremony belonged, of right, to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Becket had obtained from the Pope a letter forbidding any of the English bishops to usurp an office which was the privilege of his see. But it was impossible for him to transmit this prohibition to those to whom it was addressed, and his enemies, to remove the scruples of the prelates, exhibited a pretended letter from the pontiff, empowering the Archbishop of York to crown the prince. He was knighted early in the morning of June 14th. The coronation was performed with the usual solemnities in Westminster Abbey, and at table the king waited on his son with his own hands. The next day William, King of Scotland, David his brother, and the English barons and free tenants did homage and swore fealty to the young king. Why the wife of the prince was not crowned with her husband, we are not informed. But Lewis took to himself the insult offered to his daughter, and entered the borders of Normandy with his army. Henry hastened to defend his dominions, the two monarchs had a private conference, the former treaty was renewed, and a promise was given of an immediate reconciliation with the primate. Every attempt to undermine the integrity of the pontiff had now failed, and Henry saw with alarm that the thunder, which he had so long feared, was about to burst on his own dominions. A plan of adjustment had been arranged between his envoys and Alexander, and to defeat the chicanery of his advisers, it was accompanied with the threat of an interdict if it were not executed within the space of forty days. He consented to see the archbishop, and awaited his arrival in a spacious meadow near the town of Freitville, on the borders of Touraine, on July 22nd. As soon as Becket appeared, the king, spurring forward his horse with his cap in his hand, prevented his salutation, and, as if no dissension had ever divided them, discoursed with him apart, with all that easy familiarity which had distinguished their former friendship. In the course of their conversation, Henry exclaimed, 
as for the men who have betrayed both you and me i will make them such returns as the deserts of traitors require at these words the archbishop alighted from his horse and threw himself at the feet of his sovereign but the king laid hold of the stirrup and insisted that he should remount saying in short my lord archbishop let us renew our ancient affection for each other only show me honour before those who are now viewing our behaviour then returning to his attendants he observed i find the archbishop in the best disposition toward me were i otherwise toward him i should be the worst of men becket followed him and by the mouth of the archbishop of sens presented his petition he prayed that the king would graciously admit him to the royal favour would grant peace and security to him and his would restore the possessions of the see of canterbury and would in his mercy make amends to that church for the injury it had sustained in the late coronation of his son in return he promised him love honour and every service which an archbishop could render in the lord to his king and his sovereign to these demands henry assented they again conversed apart for a considerable time and at their separation it was mutually understood that the archbishop after he had arranged his affairs in france should return to the court and remain there for some days that the public might be convinced of the renewal and solidity of their friendship if henry felt as he pretended his conduct in this interview will deserve the praise of magnanimity but his skill in the art of dissimulation may fairly justify a suspicion of his sincerity the man who that very morning had again bound himself by an oath in the presence of his courtiers to refuse the kiss of peace could not be animated with very friendly sentiments toward the archbishop and the mind of that prelate though his hopes suggested brighter prospects was still darkened with doubt and perplexity months were suffered to elapse before the royal engagements were executed and when at last with the terrors of another interdict hanging over his head on november twelfth the king restored the archiepiscopal lands the rents had been previously levied the corn and cattle had been carried off and the buildings were left in a dilapidated state the remonstrances of the primate and his two visits to the court obtained nothing but deceitful promises his enemies publicly threatened his life and his friends harassed him with the most gloomy presages yet as the road was at last open he resolved to return to his diocese and at his departure wrote to the king an eloquent and affecting letter it is my wish he concludes to have waited on you once more but necessity compels me in the lowly state to which i am reduced to revisit my afflicted church i go sir with your permission perhaps to perish for its security unless you protect me but whether i live or die yours i am and yours i shall ever be in the lord whatever may befall me or mine may the blessing of god rest on you and your children henry had promised him money to pay his debts and defray the expenses of his journey having waited for it in vain he borrowed three hundred pounds of the archbishop of rouen and set out in the company or rather in the custody of his ancient enemy john of oxford alexander before he heard of the reconciliation at frightville had issued letters of suspension or excommunication against the bishops who had officiated at the late coronation he had afterward renewed them against roger of york gilbert of london and jocelyn of salisbury to whose misrepresentations was attributed the delay of the king to fulfil his engagements for the sake of peace the archbishop had wisely resolved to suppress these letters but the three prelates who knew that he had brought them with him had assembled at canterbury and sent to the coast ranulf de Broek with a party of soldiers to search him on his landing and take them from him information of the design reached him at whitsand and in a moment of irritation he dispatched them before himself 
in a trusty messenger by whom or by whose means they were publicly delivered to the bishops in the presence of their attendants it was a precipitate and unfortunate measure and probably the occasion of the catastrophe which followed the prelates caught in their own snare burst into loud complaints against his love of power and thirst of revenge they accused him to the young king of violating the royal privileges and wishing to tear the crown from his head and they hastened to normandy to demand redress from the justice or the resentment of henry under the protection of his conductor the primate reached canterbury december third where he was joyfully received by the clergy and people thence he prepared to visit woodstock the residence of the young henry to pay his respects to the prince and to justify his late conduct but the courtiers who dreaded his influence over the mind of his former pupil procured a peremptory order december fifteenth for him to return and confine himself to his own diocese he obeyed and spent the following days in prayer and the functions of his station yet they were days of distress and anxiety the menaces of his enemies seemed to derive importance from each succeeding event his provisions were hourly intercepted his property was plundered his servants were beaten and insulted on christmas day he ascended the pulpit his sermon was distinguished by the earnestness and animation with which he spoke at the conclusion he observed that those who thirsted for his blood would soon be satisfied but that he would first avenge the wrongs of his church by excommunicating ranoff and robert de brooke who for seven years had not ceased to inflict every injury in their power upon him on his clergy and on his monks on the following tuesday december twenty eighth arrived secretly in the neighborhood four knights reginald fitzertz william tracy hugh de morville and richard brito they had been present in normandy when the king irritated by the representations of the three bishops had exclaimed of the cowards who eat my bread is there not one who will free me from this turbulent priest and mistaking this passionate expression for the royal license had bound themselves by oath to return to england and either carry off or murder the primate they assembled at saltwood the residence of the brocks to arrange their operations the next day december twenty ninth about two in the afternoon the knights abruptly entered the archbishop's apartment and neglecting his salutation seated themselves on the floor it seems to have been their wish to begin by intimidation but if they hoped to succeed they knew little of the intrepid spirit of their opponent pretending to have received their commission from henry they ordered the primate to absolve the excommunicated prelates he replied with firmness and occasionally with warmth that if he had published the papal letters it was with the royal permission that the case of the archbishop of york had been reserved to the pontiff but that he was willing to absolve the others on condition that they previously took the accustomed oath of submitting to the determination of the church it was singular that of the four knights three had in the days of his prosperity simultaneously sworn fealty to him alluding to this circumstance he said as they were quitting the room knowing what formerly passed between us i am surprised you should come to threaten me in my own house we will do more than threaten was their reply when they were gone his attendants loudly expressed their alarm he alone remained cool and collected and neither in his tone nor gesture betrayed the slightest symptom of apprehension in this moment of suspense the voices of the monks singing vespers in the choir struck their ears and it occurred to someone that the church was a place of greater security than the palace the archbishop though he hesitated was borne along by the pious importunity of his friends but when he heard the gates close behind him he instantly ordered them to be reopened saying that the temple of god was not to be fortified like a castle he had passed through the north transept 
and was ascending the steps of the choir, when the knights, with twelve companions, all in complete armor, burst into the church. As it was almost dark, he might, if he had pleased, to conceal himself among the crypts or under the roof, but he turned to meet them, followed by Edward Grimm, his cross-bearer, the only one of his attendants who had not fled. To the vociferations of Hugh of Horsey, a military subdeacon, "'Where is the traitor?' no answer was returned. But when Fitzertz asked, "'Where is the archbishop?' he replied, "'Here I am, the archbishop, but no traitor. Reginald, I have granted thee many favors. What is thy object now, if you seek my life? I command you in the name of God not to touch one of my people.' When he was told that he must instantly absolve the bishops, he answered, "'Till they offer satisfaction, I will not.' "'Then die!' exclaimed the assassin, aiming a blow at his head. Grimm interposed his arm, which was broken, but the force of the stroke bore away the primate's cap and wounded him on the crown. As he felt the blood trickling down his face, he joined his hands and bowed his head, saying, "'In the name of Christ and for the defense of his church, I am ready to die.' In this posture, turned toward his murderers, without a groan and without a motion, he awaited a second stroke, which threw him on his knees." The third laid him on the floor at the foot of St. Bennet's altar. The upper part of his skull was broken in pieces, and Hugh of Horsey, planting his foot on the archbishop's neck, with the point of his sword, drew out the brains and strewed them over the pavement. Thus at the age of fifty-three perished this extraordinary man, a martyr to what he deemed to be his duty, the preservation of the immunities of the church. The moment of his death was a triumph of his cause his personal virtues and exalted station, the dignity and composure with which he met his fate, the sacredness of the place where the murder was perpetrated, all contributed to inspire men with horror for his enemies and veneration for his character. The advocates of the customs were silenced. Those who had been eager to condemn were now the foremost to applaud his conduct, and his bitterest foes sought to remove from themselves the odium of having been his persecutors. The cause of the church again flourished. Its liberties seemed to derive new life and additional vigor from the blood of their champion. End of section two. Recording by Olivia.